Chapter Ten, Part Two of Constance Dunlap by Arthur B. Reeve. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The blackmailers continued. Anita Douglas saw it all now. Things had not been going fast enough to suit her new friend, Mrs. Murray. So after a time, she had begun to tell her of her own escapades and to try to get Anita to admit that she had had similar adventures. It was a favorite device of detectives, working under the new psychological method by use of the law of suggestion. She had introduced herself, had found out about Lynn Monroe, and in some way, after he had left town, had got the letters. Was he in the plot, too? She could not believe it. Suddenly the thought came to her that the blackmailers might give her husband material that would look very black if a suit for divorce came up in court. What if he were able to cut off her little allowance? She trembled at the thought of being thus cast adrift on the world. Anita Douglas did not know which way to turn. In her dilemma, she thought only of Constance. She hurried to her. "'It was as you said, a frame-up,' she blurted out as she entered Constance's apartment. Then, in the same breath, added, "'That Mrs. Murray was just a stool-pigeon.' Constance received her sympathetically. She had expected such a visit, though not so soon. "'Just how much do they know?' she asked pointedly. Anita pressed her hands together nervously. "'Really, I confess,' she murmured. "'Indiscretions, yes. Misconduct, no!' She spoke the last words defiantly. Constance listened eagerly, though she did not betray it. She had found out that it was a curious twist in feminine psychology that the lie under such circumstances was a virtue, that it showed that there was still hope for such a woman. Admission of the truth, even to a friend, would have shown that the woman was hopelessly lost. Lie or not, Constance felt in her inmost heart that she approved of it. "'Still, it looks badly,' she remarked. "'Perhaps it does, on the surface,' persisted Anita. "'You poor, dear creature,' soothed Constance. "'I don't say I blame you for your indiscreet friendships. "'You are more sinned against than sinning.' Sympathy had its effect. Anita was now sobbing softly as Constance stole her arm about her waist. The next question, she reasoned, considering aloud, is, of course, what to do. If it was just one of these blackmailing detective cases, it would be common, but still very hard to deal with. There's a lot of such blackmailing going on in New York. Next to business and political cases, I suppose, it is the private detective's most important graft. Nearly everybody has a past, although few are willing to admit it. The graft lies in the fact that people talk so much, are so indiscreet, take such reckless chances. It's a wonder, really, that there isn't more of it. Yet there is the evidence, as he called it, my letters to Lynn, and the reports that that woman must have made of our, our conversations, groaned Anita. How they may distort it all! Constance was thinking rapidly. It's now after four o'clock, she said finally, looking at her wristwatch. You say it was not half an hour ago that Drummond called on you. He must be downtown about now. Your husband will hardly have a chance more than to glance over the papers this afternoon. Suddenly an idea seemed to occur to her. What do you suppose he will do with them? she asked. Mrs. Douglas looked up through her tears, calmer. He is very methodical, she answered slowly. If I know him rightly, I think he will probably go out to Glenclair with them tonight to look them over. "'Where will he keep them?' 
broke in Constance suddenly. "'He has a little safe in the library out there, where he keeps all such personal papers. I shouldn't be surprised if he looked them over and locked them up there until he intends to use them, at least until morning.' "'I have a plan,' exclaimed Constance excitedly. "'Are you game?' Anita Douglas looked at her friend squarely. In her face, Constance read the desperation of a woman battling for life and honor. "'Yes,' replied Anita in a low, tense tone. "'For anything.' "'Then meet me after dinner in the terminal. We'll go out to Glenclair.' The two looked deeply into each other's eyes. Nothing was said, but what each read was a sufficient answer to a host of unspoken questions. A moment after Mrs. Douglas had gone, Constance opened a cabinet. From the false back of a drawer she took two little vials of powder and a small bottle with a sponge. Then she added a long steel bar with a peculiar turn at the end to her paraphernalia for the trip. Nothing further occurred until they met at the terminal, or, in fact, on the journey out. On most of the ride Mrs. Douglas kept her face averted, looking out of the window into the blackness of the night. Perhaps she was thinking of other journeys out to Glenclare. Perhaps she was afraid of meeting the curious gaze of any late sojourners who might suffer from acute suburban curiosity. Quietly, the two women alighted and made their way from the station up the main street, then diverged to a darker and less frequented avenue. "'There's the house,' pointed out Mrs. Douglas, halting Constance, with a little bitter exclamation. Evidently, she had reasoned well. He had gone out there early, and there was a light in the library. "'He isn't much of a reader,' whispered Mrs. Douglas. "'Oh, it's clear to me that he has the stuff all right. He's devouring it, gloating over it.' The sound of footsteps approaching down the paved walk came to them. Loitering on the streets of a suburban town always occasions suspicion, and instinctively Constance drew Anita with her into the shadow of a hedge that set off the house from that next to it. There was no fence cutting it off from the sidewalk, but at the corner of the plot a large bush stood. In this bower they were perfectly hidden in the shadow. Hour after hour they waited, watching that light in the library, speculating what it was he was reading, while Anita, half afraid to talk, wondered what it was that Constance had in mind. Finally, the light in the library winked out, and the house was in darkness. Midnight passed, and with it the last belated suburbanite. At last, when the moon had disappeared under some clouds, Constance pulled Anita gently along, up the lawn. There was no sign of life about the house, yet Constance observed all the caution she would have if it had been well guarded. Quickly they advanced over the open space to the cottage, approaching in the shadow as much as possible. Tiptoeing over the porch, Constance tried a window, the window through which had shone the tantalizing light. It was fastened. Without hesitation she pulled out the long steel bar with the twisted head, and began to insert the sharp end between the sashes. "'Aren't you afraid?' chattered her companion. "'No,' she whispered, not looking up from her work. You know, most persons don't know enough about jimmies. Against them an ordinary door-lock or window-catch is no protection at all. Why, with this jimmy, even a woman can exert a pressure of a ton or so. Not one catch in a thousand can stand it. Certainly not this one. Constance continued to work, 
muffling the lever as much as possible in a piece of felt. At last, a quick wrench, and the catch yielded. The only thing wrong about it was the noise. There had been no wind, no passing trolley, nothing to conceal it. They shrank back into the shadow and waited, breathless. Had it been heard? Would a window open presently and an alarm be sounded? There was not a sound save the rustle of the leaves in the night wind. A few minutes later, Constance carefully raised the lower sash, and they stepped softly into the house, once the house over which Anita Douglas had been mistress. Cautiously, Constance pressed the button on a little pocket storage battery lamp and flashed it slowly about the room. All was quiet in the library. The library table was disordered, as if someone in great stress of mind had been working at it. Anita wondered what had been the grim thoughts of the man as he pondered on the mass of stuff, the tissue of falsehoods that the blackmailing detective had handed to him at such great cost. At last the cone of light rested on a little safe at the opposite end. "'There it is,' whispered Anita, pointing, half afraid even of the soft tones of her own voice. Constance had pulled down all the shades quietly and drew the curtains tightly between the room and the foyer. On the top of the safe she was pouring some of the powder in a neat pile from one of the vials. "'What is that?' asked Anita, bending close to her ear. "'Some powdered metallic aluminum mixed with oxide of iron,' whispered Constance in return. "'I read of this thing in a scientific paper the other day, and I determined to get some of it. But I didn't think I'd ever really have occasion to use it.' She added some powder from the other vial. "'And that?' "'Magnesium powder.' Constance had lighted a match. "'Stand back, Anita,' she whispered. "'Pack, Anita,' she whispered. "'Back in the farthest corner of the room, and keep quiet. Shut your eyes. Turn your face away.' There was a flash, blinding, then a steady, brilliant burst of noiseless, penetrating, burning flame. Anita had expected an explosion. Instead she found that her eyes hurt. She had not closed them tightly quick enough. Still, Constance's warning had been sufficient to prevent any damage to the site, and she slowly recovered. Actually, the burning powder seemed to be sinking into the very steel of the safe itself, as if it had been mere ice. Was it an optical illusion, a freak of her sight? Well, what is it? she whispered in awe, drawing closer to her friend. Thermite, whispered Constance in reply, as the two watched the glowing mass fascinated an invention of a German chemist called Goldschmidt. It will burn a hole right through steel, at a terrific temperature, 3,000 or more degrees. The almost burned-out mass seemed to fall into the safe as if it had been a wooden box instead of chrome steel. They waited a moment, still blinking, to regain control over their eyes, in spite of the care they had used to shield them. Then they tiptoed across the floor. In the top of the safe yawned a hole large enough to stick one's hand and arm through. Constance reached into the safe and drew out something on which she flashed the pocket light. There was bundle after bundle of checks, the personal checks of a methodical businessman carefully preserved. Hastily, she looked them over. All seemed to be perfectly straight, payments to tradesmen, to real estate agents, payments of all sorts, all carefully labeled. Oh, He'd never let anything like that lie around, remarked Anita, as she began to comprehend what Constance was after. 
Constance was scrutinizing some of the checks more carefully than others. Suddenly, she held one up to the light. Apparently, it was in payment of legal services. Quickly, she took the little bottle of brownish fluid which she had brought with the sponge. She dipped the sponge in it lightly and brushed it over the check. Then she leaned forward breathlessly. Eradicating ink is simply a bleaching process, she remarked, which leaves the iron of the ink as a white oxide instead of a black oxide. The proper reagent will restore the original color, partially and at least for a time. Ah, yes, it is as I thought. There have been erasures in these checks. Other names have been written in on some of them in place of those that were originally there. The sulfide of ammonia ought to bring out anything that is hidden here. There, faintly, was the original writing. It read, Pay to the order of Helen Brett. Mrs. Douglas, with difficulty, restrained an exclamation of anger and hatred at the mere sight of the name of the other woman. He was careful, remarked Constance. Reckless at first in giving checks, he has tried to cover it up. He didn't want to destroy them, yet he couldn't have such evidence about, so he must have altered the name on the cancelled vouchers after they were returned to him paid by the bank. Very clever, very. Constance reached into the safe again. There were some personal and some business letters, some old checkbooks, some silver and gold trinkets, and table silver. She gave a low exclamation. She had found a packet of letters and a sheaf of typewritten, flimsy, tissue-paper pages. Mrs. Douglas uttered a little cry, quickly suppressed. The letters were those in her own handwriting, addressed to Lynn Monroe. "'Here are Drummond's reports, too,' Constance added. She looked them hastily over. The damning facts had been massed in a way that must inevitably have prejudiced any case for the defense that Mrs. Douglas might set up. "'There, there's all the evidence against you,' whispered Constance hoarsely, handing it over to Anita. "'It's all yours again. Destroy it.' In her eagerness, with trembling hands, Anita had torn up the whole mass of incriminating papers and had cast them into the fireplace. She was about to strike a match. Suddenly there came a deep voice from the stairs. "'Well, what's all this?' Anita dropped the match from her nerveless hands. Constance felt an arm grasp her tightly. For a moment a chill ran over her at being caught in the nefarious work of breaking and entering a dwelling-house at night. The hand was Anita's, but the voice was that of a man. Lights flashed all over the house at once from a sort of electric light system that could be instantly lighted and would act as a burglar expeller. It was Douglas himself. He was staring angrily at his wife and the stranger with her. Well, he demanded with cold sarcasm, why this, this burglary? Before he could quite take in the situation, with a quick motion, Constance struck a match and touched it to the papers in the fireplace. As they blazed up, he caught sight of what they were and almost leaped across the floor. Constance laid her hand on his arm. "'One moment, Mr. Douglas,' she said quietly. "'Look at that.' "'Who? Who the devil are you?' he gasped. "'What's all this?' "'I think,' remarked Constance slowly and quietly, "'that your wife is now in a position to prove that you, well, don't come into court with clean hands.' if you attempt to do so. Besides, you know, the courts rather frown on detectives that practice collusion and conspiracy and frame up evidence, to say nothing of trying to blackmail the victims. 
I thought perhaps you'd prefer not to say anything about this, er, visit tonight, after you saw that. Constance had quietly laid one of the erased checks on the library table. Again she dipped the sponge into the brownish liquid. Again the magic touch revealed the telltale name. With her finger, she was pointing to the faintly legible Helen Brett on the check as the sulfide had brought it out. Douglas stared, dazed. He rubbed his eyes and stared again as the last of the flickering fire died away. In an instant he realized that it was not a dream, that it was all a fact. He looked from one to the other of the women. He was checkmated. Constance ostentatiously folded up the erased vouchers. I, I shall not make any contest, Douglas managed to gasp huskily. End of chapter 10